there is a uh, sermon outline, your order of services. You might want to take that out uh, to follow along. That might be helpful for you. Uh, there is also a Bible reading uh, sheet over there. Uh, that I will refer to that will be helpful as well. Let me welcome you to Grace Point again. Uh, if you're a visitor and our guest uh, here this morning, and if you're a regular, welcome back uh, and a Merry Christmas to you. Uh, let me pray for us as we open up uh, the Bible this Christmas day. Gracious God, we do thank you that you reveal yourself and you speak in a true word. Uh, we thank you that we are a- able to celebrate Christmas as a church family, and we do pray as we open up the Bible and as we look at this portion of the Bible that speaks of the birth of Jesus you might help us better understand who He is so that we might better respond to Him. And we ask this in His name. Amen. Less so this year, but the most well-known scene at Christmas that's constantly recreated at Christmas is actually the nativity scene. Uh, The baby Jesus in a manger surrounded by Mary and Joseph, uh, cattle and sheep around them, the wise men bowing from the east with their gifts, Uh, The shepherds with their staff, they surround him. And traditionally sung at carols in the domain, and you would have heard it this year if you've watched it, Away in a manger, no crib for a bed. The little Lord Jesus laid down his sweet head. The stars in the bright sky looked down where he lay. The little Lord Jesus asleep on the hay. And, And so it's really no surprise that for many at Christmas, that's all Jesus is. A child in a manger. A cute, sentimental figure, domesticated, tame, silent, and asleep. Now, I want to suggest to you this Christmas morning that there is no more important question that faces every man, woman, and child this Christmas than this one. And it's the title of uh, our passage today, Who is this baby Jesus to you? Christmas confronts us with that very question. Who is this baby Jesus to you? Uh, A child in the manger, uh, asleep, domesticated, tame and silent, or is he something more? Christmas confronts society and culture with that very question. Who is this baby Jesus to you? In fact, the vast majority of people in society and culture and history are very positive when it comes to Jesus. It's true of both Christian people. It's true of those who are uh, secular. Uh, He has influenced both Christian and non-Christian. Gandhi, Indian political leader for Gandhi, Jesus was the perfect model of sacrificial love. I quote, a man who was completely innocent, offered himself as a sacrifice for the good of others, including his enemies, and became the ransom of the world. It was a perfect act. Jesus is a model of perfect love. That was for Gandhi. Uh, Here's another one which will surprise you. I quote, in boundless love as a Christian and as a man, I read through the passage which tells us how the Lord at last rose in his might and seized the scourge to drive out of the temple, the brood of vipers and adders. How terrific was his fight for the world. For some, Jesus was a revolutionary. That was Adolf Hitler. Uh, for others, Jesus was a powerful prophet sent from God. This is another one from someone. No prophet before Jesus cast out demons that I can remember. Do you remember any of the old prophets casting out demons? Jesus was deep. There was something about the power of his word that demons came out. That was Louis Farrakhan Sr., leader of the religious group, Nation of Islam. For Louis Farrakhan, Jesus was a prophet unlike any other. That's all he was. For Martin Luther King Jr., Jesus was a good man. Jesus Christ, he says, was an extremist for love, truth, and goodness. He was a man of justice. 
for the uh, Russian author, Fyodor Dostoevsky. He wrote, I believe there is no one deeper, lovelier, more sympathetic, and more perfect than Jesus. Not only is there no one else like him, there could never be anyone like him. And so for Dostoevsky, Jesus was a moral teacher, unlike any other. And so it's fair to say in a room like this, I don't know all of you, some of you are friends uh, who've come. It's fair to say everyone in this room has a view of Jesus. Who Jesus is to you, believer or unbeliever, Christian or non-Christian. And so no more important question confronts us this Christmas than this question. Who is this baby Jesus to you? And so for some people, uh, he's a model of perfect sacrificial love. For others, he's a revolutionary. Uh, standing up to the establishment of the day. For some, he's a prophet. For some, he's a great moral teacher. For some, he's a good man. But the pages of the Bible actually reveals to us that he's more than a model of sacrificial love. Uh, He's more than a revolutionary. He's more than just a prophet or a moral teacher. Uh, And so in front of you is Matthew's account of the birth of Jesus. So you might want to pull that out. And Matthew's account of the birth of Jesus opens not with a nativity scene, There is no baby Jesus lying in a manger. Matthew's account of the first Christmas begins with a family tree. Okay? It's kind of boring, isn't it? It's not not a very great selling point on a Hallmark card uh, because, you know, you won't see the family tree in any shopping center. Uh, But it's there because a family tree tells us something about who he is. And that's what a family tree does. It tells you who you are, where you come from, skeletons in the closet, who you are, the good, the bad but it also establishes your credentials, doesn't it? Uh, I've told this story before, but in 2007, a mechanic in Maryland's in the U.S. discovered he was English royalty. Uh, You know, David Howie, he searched his family ancestry online, and he discovered that he was the heir to the throne of the British Isle of Man. His family revealed that he was a cousin of Queen Elizabeth II, And so he made headlines in 2007 because he sent his intention to claim his title to the London Gazette, the official journal of record of the British government. Now, the locals on the British Isle of Man, they did not like his claim, but his family tree established his credentials. It established who he is, where he's come from. That's what a family tree does. You know, like that brilliant SBS show that many of you have seen, Who Do You Think You Are? You know, the show traces your ancestry uh, of famous historical people. You know, Australian funny man Shane Jacobson discovered uh, he came uh, from a family of not just carnival workers. He came from a family of Vikings. And then he discovered that his ancestors uh, were forced to sit on a shaming stool to atone for sexual crime. Well, here is the Bible's version of who do you think you are for Jesus, telling us something about Jesus who he is, where he's come from, his history. And so here is Jesus' Ancestry.com, right? Matthew chapter 1. So have a look at that with me. The first thing you discover in Jesus' family tree is that it's a royal family tree. He's got royal blood. He comes from a long line of kings. Uh, His ancestor is the greatest king in Israel's history, David himself. And so notice how the family tree actually begins. This is the genealogy, the family tree of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, another version of the Bible, maybe you've got this version of the Bible, puts it like this, a record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. This is who Jesus is. He is, notice two words there, he is the Messiah, or in another version of the Bible, he is the Christ. 
which is not his last name, right? Jesus Christ is not his last name. It's not like Nick Russell, Russell's the last name, or Matt Chan, Chan is the last name. No, he is Jesus Christ. It's his title. He is the Christ, the Messiah. It's really his job description. Jesus the Christ means, or Jesus the Messiah means, God's chosen king. In fact, we use titles all the time, don't we? I look around the room and I can see people here. Uh, Jasmine, the primary school teacher. Bernard, the doctor. Jono, the accountant. Bobby, the pharmacist. Here is Jesus' title, uh, and it's found in his birthright. Jesus, the Messiah, God's chosen king. Which is why the baby in the manger is no ordinary child. Here's the reason why the nativity scene is significant. Because what we're supposed to, to witness is the birth of a king. The, the nativity scene, right? There, there are three wise men, and they're laying their treasures, gold, frankincense, and myrrh at the feet of Jesus. It's actually a worship scene. They are worshiping the king, or the birth of the king. Uh, you read that in Matthew chapter 2. I'll read that for us, verse 9. After they had heard the king, they want, went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them, until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Notice how the first Christmas, uh, the birth of Jesus is marked by the wise and the powerful on their knees before him. Overwhelmed by his presence, they fall down, and they offer up their treasures to him. Why? Because here in the manger before them is the great son of David the king, the heir to the throne of the king, the true one. Now, you and I, were not Jewish, uh, but if you knew your Bibles and you were Jewish, David is very significant because who is David? Uh, he's actually Israel's greatest king. He's the king through whom God made certain promises. And one of the big promises in the Bible is that God promised David that a son would rule in his throne on a kingdom that would last forever. That's what God promised David. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever. It'll be an everlasting kingdom. And so when we come to Matthew chapter 1 and we read of the family tree of Jesus, this family tree is establishing Jesus' credentials. This is the son, not just any son, but the son of David whose everlasting rule, whose eternal kingdom, whose unshakable throne has come. And so this is what we read. Look at verse 5 and verse 6 with me. As you look at his family tree, Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab, Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth, Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. That's why it's there. Initially, we were going to get Viv to read uh, the entire genealogy, but we didn't want to be cruel because there's so many foreign names in there. But, but you look at the line of kings in this family tree. Look at verse 7 to verse 11. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, another king. And Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. And so what the Bible is actually saying is that Jesus comes from a long, 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 long line of, family, of kings, right? Name after name are the kings of Israel, king after king. His blood is royal, it can be traced from David and his sons and through their sons. And even after the kingship ends, his royal line continues. You read right at the end 
uh, all the way down to verse 16. After the exile to Babylon, you've got all these names, Jeconiah, Sheltel, uh, their governors, Jacob, the father of Joseph, all the way down to those final words. And Mary was the mother of Jesus who is called the Messiah, God's chosen king. And so this is a royal family tree establishing for us who Jesus is. And so the one we meet in the nativity scene in chapter 2 is more than just an ordinary baby in a manger. The one we greet with such sentimentality uh, at Christmas is more than just a domesticated, tame, and silent baby in the manger. He is the Messiah, God's chosen king. And so we're witnessing, as it were, the birth of a king whose rule and whose kingdom is everlasting, a rule that doesn't end. Now, this is the reason why chapter 2 is so significant, because the first Christmas was actually marked by great violence. Uh, the nativity scene is actually marked by bloodshed, and that comes in chapter 2. Again, you know, this sort of thing never makes the Christmas card, does it? Uh, the pleasantries of the first Christmas, we enjoy carols and light and tinsel and roast turkey and ham and hot chocolate and gifts shared. They're all absent in chapter 2. Uh, everything we enjoy at Christmas that's marked by the nativity scene is replaced by bloodshed in chapter 2. Uh, chapter 2 is what I call the ugly side of Christmas, the first Christmas, because the nativity scene is surrounded by lies and threats and fear and deception and genocide and death. We meet a child on the run with his parents. We, we meet the slaughter uh, of children all around Bethlehem where Jesus was born. Uh, why? Well, look at chapter 2, verse 1 to verse 3 which is there in the sheet that we handed out of the Bible verses. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When, the king, when king Herod heard this, he was disturbed. He was unnerved, right? He was upset. Why? Because all Jerusalem with him was upset. And so the birth of Jesus is actually a threat to King Herod. And if a king has come, if a king has come, it's a threat, isn't it, to my rule, my kingdom, my throne, my way of life. Is Jesus has come as God's king, whose rule, whose kingdom, and whose throne is everlasting. Then, like Herod, I have one of two choices. Accept his rule and step aside, right? Come under his kingship, or I'll be threatened by it, and I'll fight it. I'll rage against it. There are only two choices available because there's only one captain, isn't there, on the ship. When the captain is not on the ship, the first officer takes charge. When the captain comes back on the ship, the first officer steps aside. And so notice, who is Jesus? His Ancestry.com tells us that he's God's king, the Messiah, the Christ has come. And so what happens is that in chapter 2, King Herod won't stand against him, so he rages against Jesus. And so the genealogy is here to establish who Jesus is. And so he's more than a model of sacrificial love. Uh, he's more than a revolutionary. He's more than a prophet. He's more than a good man or a great teacher. Jesus, notice, is God's king. But notice he's also not like other kings in the ancient world because, you know, normally what happens is when a king comes, what does a king come to do? A king comes to subjugate. Uh, he comes to conquer. He comes to dominate. He comes to enslave. Uh, kings normally come to, to expand their wealth, their status by dominion. 
But as you read in, on in Matthew chapter 1, you, you discover Jesus is a very different king, isn't he? He comes as God's king to rule, that's true. He comes as God's king to establish God's kingdom, that's true. But then come down with me to verse 18 and verse 21. Uh, as you read on, you discover he's God's king come to save. You see there? This is the story of the birth of the Messiah, the Christ, God's king. Notice verse 18. This is how the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, God's king, came about. And in verse 21, she will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. You see there? Now, I have to say, verse 21 is a very unusual verse. Uh, because kings come to conquer, to enlarge their territory, to build a kingdom, to make war. Uh, you sort of expect she'll give birth to a son. You, you give him the name Jesus because he'll conquer, he'll rule, he'll build Israel's place in the world. And that's what you expect of God's king. In fact, that's what we expect of our politicians, those who lead our country to make us great economically. Uh, that's what we expect of our CEOs to increase our profit margin as shareholders but you read, you are to name him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. And that's what Jesus means, God's Savior, God's Rescuer. And so two worlds, you know, collide as you actually hear his name and his title. Jesus the Christ, Jesus the Messiah, God's Savior King, God's Rescuer King. You know, I prefer God's Conquering King, God's Victorious King, but Jesus as God's king comes to save. And that's why the story of Jesus is actually the story of God's saving, right? Many of you are familiar uh, of the, the story of the life of Jesus in the Gospels. The story of, it's the story of healing, isn't it? The sick made well. It's the story of restoration, isn't it? The outcast included. It's the story of brokenness reversed, the lost brought home. It's the story of the struggling, the confused given peace, the story of comfort, the lonely befriended, the story of grief and tears wiped away, death overcome. Uh, and this is the reason why uh, Viv read for us Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6 and verse 7, because way back the prophet Isaiah in chapter 9, verse 6 and 7, anticipated the birth of Jesus. But it's really interesting when you look at Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6 and 7, it's not just the kingship of Jesus that's talked about, but it's title after title reminding us of his saving work. He comes to rule. The government is on his shoulders, but his kingdom rule is the rule of what? Is the rule of a wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. Which means if you know him as king, he is your counselor. He walks with you and he'll never abandon you. If you know him as king, he is your mighty God. He's powerfully for you. Uh, if you know him as king, he is your everlasting father. He'll provide for you. If you know him as king, he is your prince of peace. Under his rule is comfort and assurance. And so even if you weren't a Christian, you could imagine this, couldn't you? You could actually imagine this. Because all of us, whether we are Christian people or we're not Christian people, we want to live under a rule and a kingdom, a government, where the lonely are comforted, where the needs of the poor are provided for where power is used to make things right, where conflict is replaced with peace. Now, Christian people actually believe that the child Jesus in the manger is God's king come to save, to do just that. Because notice verse 21, the king comes to save, yes, but his greatest saving work 
is seen in that He will save us from our sins. You see there, verse 21? He comes to save us from our sins. Uh, a couple of years ago, I was around the corner here at Burwood. Uh, we were driving uh, on the border of uh, Strathfield and Burwood, and uh, my previous car broke down. The radiator busted, smoke coming out of the engine. I pulled over. We were stuck at the side of the road. Police car comes by. They get out to check on us, and then they, they left. They said, we can't do anything. NRMA comes by. They couldn't do anything as well. We needed saving. We needed rescue. Right? We couldn't pick Ash up from school, from a school event that we were driving to. Uh, we needed to find a way to get back home to pick up another car. Uh, and so what did I do? I put out an SOS on Facebook. Uh, and Tim, you know, lots of people like my SOS, but no one actually offered to help, like, you know. Uh, but Tim Lee, right, he offered to help, and he came, uh, he was from the Lidcombe site, he came to our rescue, he picked us up, he took us home, uh, he saved us. Now, imagine with me for a moment, I need a kidney transplant, and I put out an SOS on Facebook, right? Anyone able to help? Now, it takes love, doesn't it, to go out of your way to give me a lift home, to save me when my car's broken down, but it takes much more love to give me your kidney, to save me when I need a working kidney. Now, you might do it if we are the best of friends. And we do read such stories, right? 2017, Selena Gomez, her best friend, donated her kidney to her when she needed a kidney. But I want to say to you, Jesus comes as king, not for those who are good, not for his friends, not for those who are able or healthy or strong, no, Notice he comes to save the undeserving, the enemy, those who are not good. And so, and so here lies the difference between Christianity and religion, the difference between Christianity and the secular, because religion says only good people get saved. Only those who are good are deserving. Uh, if you're good, you're in. If you're good enough, your sins can be forgiven. Be more moral, be a better person, keep the commandments, do good, and your sins can be forgiven, atoned for. And so, you know, religion is like Santa, right? Because Santa keeps a list of who's naughty and nice, doesn't he? Right? The mantra of religion is, he sees you when you're sleeping, he knows when you're awake, he knows you've been good or bad, so be good for goodness sake. And so, religion operates on the principle of works, your good works. You can save yourself if you're moral and good enough. Now, the secular approach to life and sin is no different. Uh, only those who perform, only those who are smart enough, strong enough, beautiful enough, they're welcome. Uh, they're embraced if they're deserving. Notice the secular also operates on the principle of works, your good works. You can save yourself if you're smart enough, strong enough, attractive enough. And so here's the thing, isn't it? In religion and in the secular, only the deserving are saved. The good, the strong, the beautiful, the attractive. But notice something different in the Christian faith. It's possible for anyone to be saved because Jesus comes to save you from your sins. He says, stop trying to save yourself and let me save you. That's why I've come. Now, it is absurd, isn't it? If, if you today needed a kidney transplant and they found you a kidney donor you say, and you then said to your specialist, I don't need the donor kidney, I'll save myself, that would be a bit absurd, isn't it? Or even more absurd, you believe you'll be fine doing nothing about your condition. It's just as absurd when Jesus says, I've come to save you from your sins, and you say, I'll save myself, or even worse, I'll be fine. Because greater than any physical healing, greater than any emotional or mental restoration, greater than any 
comfort from adversity, greater than from any deliverance from suffering. He comes to save you from the ultimate danger, the ultimate suffering, the ultimate disease, sin itself. Because everyone here in this room, we all live lives our own way. We ignore God, our Creator. We abandon His way and we adopt our way in life. And so we reject His purpose for us. We enjoy the goodness of His provision in His world. We take from His hand, but we reject His hands. And because of that, we are guilty. Terminally destined not just for physical death, but spiritual death, for judgment, for condemnation. And so we all need saving. Now here's the good news, isn't it? God's King has come to save us from our sins. That's true. The King has come to save the suffering, the lonely, the lost, the confused. He comes not just to to heal and physically restore, but even more than that, He comes to save us from the ultimate disease that plagues us, our sins. And so, unlike other kings who come and conquer with a sword, Jesus comes and conquers by being nailed to a cross. Jesus is a king who conquers not with a sword, but with love, laying down his life for the guilty, the lost, the undeserving. And so what happens at the cross is that the king takes on himself the burden of your sin. He takes your judgment. He's crushed in your place. He takes your condemnation and your sin, and he's crushed in your place. That's what happens at the cross. At the cross, he's saving you. His greatness is matched only by his love. Kings come to take, but Jesus comes to save and give. Kings come to command, but Jesus comes to serve. Kings come to enslave, but Jesus comes to bring freedom from sin and death. Kings come to destroy, but Jesus comes to give life. Kings rule with power, but this king rules with love. Kings carry a sword, but this king carries a cross. God's King and Savior has come in Jesus. That's what's being announced at Christmas. A royal birth is being announced, which is why we read Matthew chapter 4, verse 15 and verse 16. Land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, light has dawned. The nativity scene is the light of a king come born to save, saving us from ultimate suffering, ultimate judgment, the ultimate pain and loss. He is God's King and Savior. Which is why, you know, when you think of Christmas, Christmas is actually both good news and bad news. Do you know that? It's not all good news. It's good news and it's bad news. Every Christmas, the light of God's King and Savior shines. The nativity scenes, right, mark our shopping centers, the carols that so many people hear and sing at the domain, the gifts that will be exchanged, they are all a reminder that God's light has dawned in the darkness of a broken world, a guilty world, a world in rebellion, and the birth of God's King has come as light to save. That's what we're being reminded of. Every Christmas, you and I have been confronted with that question, who is Jesus to you? Is He your King? But even more than that, is He your Savior? And how you answer the question will mean good news or bad news, right? Let me tell you why. Because there can only be one king. There can only be one king, one rule, one authority, one power. You know, as the story of Jesus unfolds, Jesus sends out his disciples to make known his rule, his kingship, his saving work. And we read that eventually, 
Everyone has to make a choice because we come head to head with Jesus, don't we? And so in Matthew chapter 10, verse 32, Jesus says, Whoever receives me before others, I will also receive before my Father. But whoever rejects me before others, I will also reject. And so this is why Christmas is good news and bad news, right? Because you've got to do the maths at Christmas. The most important question every man, woman, and child must answer at Christmas is this, who is Jesus to you, right? Acknowledge him, and he'll acknowledge you. Reject him, and he will reject you. There is no middle ground or fence, right? You are either for him or against him. There's no room for apathy or indifference. And so can I say to you, here's a question that you want to get right at Christmas. Who is Jesus to you? But we're confronted with a far more significant question, isn't it? Who are you to Jesus? Who are you to Jesus? Are you His? Do you belong to Him? Are you, are you someone who's welcomed His rule? Or are you His enemy? One who keeps ignoring Him, raging against Him, His way, His design, His purpose, His kingship. Christmas is a season of good news, but it's also bad news. Hope for some, but not for others. Joy for some, but not for others. Peace for some, but not for others. Healing for some, but not for others. Salvation for some, but not for others. And whether you know hope and joy and peace and healing and forgiveness and salvation, it all depends on how you answer those two questions. Who is Jesus to you or who are you to Jesus? Now, the great irony for me is that all across our city, in parks and at the domain, on national TV, we're encouraged to join in the festivities. Carols are sung. Christian carols are sung in our secular city. In our shopping malls, you'll hear Christmas carols played. And you know, that actually tells you something about our longing. Whether you're Christian or whether secular, uh, religious or non-religious, we have the same longings. We long for all that Jesus Jesus promises. We long for hope and joy and love and peace and healing and forgiveness and salvation. We all long for those things, Christian or not. The problem is that we want the kingdom Jesus promises without the king. So we want the kingdom without the king. And so whether you know hope and joy and love and peace and healing and forgiveness and salvation depends on how you answer those two questions. Who is Jesus to you? Who are you to Jesus? We'll end soon and we'll all wish each other happy Christmas, merry Christmas, joy-filled Christmas, peace at Christmas. But can I say to you, it's really only for those who have answered those questions rightly. It's only for those who've received Jesus as their King and Savior. Like I said, you can't have a kingdom filled with hope and joy and peace and love and forgiveness and salvation without a King and Savior. I'm going to pray a prayer in a moment. It's there in your outline. It may be a prayer that's right for you this Christmas. I'm going to read this for us so you know what you'd be praying. And if this is a prayer that you'd love to pray, let me actually encourage you to pray that prayer with me. It goes something like this. Dear God, we thank you that Christmas marks the dawn of your light in the darkness of our sin and death. Forgive us for treating Jesus as nothing more than a domesticated, tame, silent child asleep in the manger. Help us see that in Jesus, your King and Savior has come. Help us to receive him personally as your King and Savior, so that we might truly know the peace, joy, and happiness of being personally known by Jesus, your King and Savior. Maybe that's a prayer that's right for you. And if it's a prayer that's right for you, let me encourage you to pray that prayer with me.
Dear God, we thank you that Christmas marks the dawn of your light, light in the darkness of our sin and death. Forgive us for treating Jesus as nothing more than a domesticated, tame, silent child asleep in the manger. Help us see that in Jesus, your King and Saviour has come. Help us to receive him personally as our King and Saviour, so that we might truly know the peace, joy, and happiness of being personally known by Jesus, your King and Saviour. Amen.